It can be scary when you think about how much of our so-called personal and confidential information is actually accessible in so many places and by so many different people and organizations. You need to learn what's being done with this information and how to keep yourself secure. Welcome to My Connected Life with Tyler Cohen Wood. When you're in control of your data in cyberspace, you feel all the more secure. Now, here's your host, Tyler Cohen Wood. Hi, welcome to My Connected Life with your host, Tyler Cohen Wood. Today, we have a really exciting, interesting topic. Um, we're going to talk about the supply chain crisis or the supply chain disruption. We've all been affected by raised gas prices, um, not being able to find things on the shelves, and so many more things. But also, how does this affect cybersecurity? And today, we are very lucky to have two special guests, um, along with my co-host, Scott Schober. Hello, Scott. Hello. Hey, everybody. So first, I'd like to welcome Chuck Brooks. There are so many accolades to these two men that I'm just going to have to just say something very quickly. But Chuck Brooks, he's the president of Brooks Consulting International, and he's named as one of the top top five tech people to follow on LinkedIn. And Matthew Rosenquist is the chief information security officer, CISO for Eclipse, and a former cybersecurity strategist for Intel. Welcome, Chuck. Welcome, David. Matthew. Uh, thank David. you, Tyler. It's yeah. great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> great to be here. Look forward to the conversation. So are we in a supply chain crisis? You look at one source, you say yes, and you, you see it. And then you look at another source and you hear we're in a supply chain slight disruption. So it's kind of confusing. Would you say we're in a crisis? I would say we're in, in definitely in a crisis because it's permeating so many different verticals. And it's also related to, to physical products as well as digital products. And um, it's an issue that it's affecting our economic well-being. So that and there's no quick remedy uh, on the horizon. So that's a crisis. If it keeps happening, it's a crisis. If it happens once, it's a disruption. So it's multiple disruptions. It is disruptions in, in logistics. It's disruptions in, in oil pipelines. It's disruptions in, in pharmaceuticals. So all different kinds of verticals, I think, are, are being uh, impacted by this. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the, the prescription medications. Um, the FDA recently listed 111 um, critical medications like insulin, heart medications that pharmacies just cannot keep in stock. And so pharmacists are trying to help their patients by recommending alternative methods until they can get these medications in stock. That's kind of when it starts to get scary. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're dealing with, uh, you know, and, and if you're going to link cyber, I really think it gets most scary when you talk about healthcare or, you know, or, or biomedicine, because uh, a lot of those uh, organizations, hospitals, health facilities just don't have good cybersecurity. Uh, they rely on open source, a lot of uh, uh, logistics that, that could be easily disrupted. And um, they have been targets largely uh, through ransomware of uh, a lot of the bad players already. So, you know, imagine the situation could be, and it's a weapon. If you could disrupt, uh, you know, our pharmaceutical uh, ability to get our, the drugs we need, uh, you're going to create a crisis, just like if you did, um, you know, creating a crisis with the oil with the colonial pipeline. But this is even more severe, and I really worry about uh, protecting healthcare. I, healthcare I, is just I'm, one of, of many critical infrastructures that our nation, every nation, really depends upon. And if we're in a crisis now, building on kind of what Chuck said, if we're in a crisis now, well, hold on to your boots because it's going to get much worse down the line, especially from a cyber perspective. There's going to be more attacks. There's going to be more impacts. And the attackers are going to find more creative ways to put pressure on those critical infrastructures. And when we're talking critical infrastructures, we are talking healthcare, we're talking finances and economies, we're talking shipping and logistics, right? Getting food from one place to another, yes. um, you know, fuel distribution, electricity, water purification, and water sanitization. You have all these different areas that are all subject to attack. And this is the tip of the iceberg. So if we're going to call it a crisis today, which I think we do, uh, yeah. because it isn't a one-time blip. 
right? It isn't a disruption, as Chuck said. We really need to kind of settle back and go, okay, this is probably going to get much, much worse before it gets better. So it's a crisis today. What do we call it tomorrow? 2X crisis, super crisis. Get the, get, get the fancy marketing words ready because it, it's, it's going to get more difficult moving forward. Well, we, we also have the issue with um, a lack of, of chips, of components. Um, I don't know if, if any of you have been in the market for a car or if your lease or whatever is up. I happen to be in that situation right now. Time. And I'm telling you, there is not a worse time to buy a car than there is right now. Yeah, I, so, I think it's even, it's even compounded, Tyler, because... If you're trying to get a new car, you're trying to lease a car, and maybe you say, well, maybe I'll get a used car. Guess what? The prices of used cars are now astronomical. So you've got, this, you've got this kind of speaking to the bigger points that you are all making. I think it's almost a cumulative disruption in multiple industries that has now created a crisis that's kind of ongoing. I think about just something as simple as you mentioned transporting maybe medicine or, or even integrated circuits or things, which are already, there's shortages on. To, to get it into a truck, there's 80,000 drivers shortage just in the US. Yes. You've got high gas prices. They're, they're, they're getting record all-time high and they may get higher before they get lower. So those are just things that kind of compound the issue. And now you couple in a cyber attack. Imagine a targeted ransomware attack to one of the major shipping companies, to an airline. Think about how that entire process now and supply chain and logistics is so affected in so many different areas. It can almost be devastating. And we don't have to imagine that. It's happening it's now. Happening. And, and we know it's going to get worse because especially with ransomware, if you pay the bad guys, well, Green Principle says they're going to come back tomorrow and go bigger. Yeah. So, you know, this doesn't go away. We've got nation states where the gloves are coming off and, you know, other nations, other governments are, are taking to offensive measures. And guess what's right in the middle of that target? Critical infrastructure. So you can disable, regardless of if you have a border with somebody or not, if you have an enemy on the other side of the world and they're reliant, uh, especially like we are, right? Look at digital transformation, look at the industrial revolution, the fourth industrial revolution, we are so tied in with technology, digital technology that gives tremendous benefits uh, to our lives, but we're also potentially victims if those technologies are undermined and those chains, supply chain being one of them, right? Those chains are impacted. It has a cascading effect. Yes. I agree as Matt said, and we're being tested too. And we're being tested by loosely affiliated uh, uh, criminal hackers with uh, state actors it's happening every day, particularly on the energy uh, infrastructure. And uh, the good news, I think, is that, that we're actually not sitting down anymore. We're, we're retaliating. And recently, the U.S. Cyber Command said that, yes, we're going after the ransomware attackers, hopefully with what Matt was saying, with uh, some offensive capabilities, because we do not have a lot of our own offensive capabilities. And we could, if it, it is a war, and, and if it does get to a, a next level, like like Matt says, where everything is, is disrupted in our and we can't go out to the grocery store or have our medicines. Uh, I think uh, it's imperative that we, we do something uh, uh, very visible and very strong against those uh, instigating these attacks. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more of that, to, to be perfectly honest, Chuck. I think, the, again, the reins have been relaxed and the offensive operators in the U.S. government have kind of been given the green light. Go after some of these selectively. Don't, don't cause a war. But go after these, especially if they're being sponsored by foreign governments, you know, and they're third party mercenary, digital mercenaries for hire, go after and, and start making some noise. So um, I'm looking forward to more of that. But we also know the attackers, they will respond. They won't just give up. Right. Mm -hmm. Being attacked or counterattacked is an occupational hazard for organized criminal groups. So this is nothing new. They're not going to be scared. They'll yeah. probably pause for a little bit to harden their infrastructure, secure their communications and a few other things before they come back with force. But as you said, this is going to be a war. We have an intelligent adversary. At least we're now showing up to the battlefield, yes. whereas previously we didn't. <laughs> so yes. I'm glad that we are. And unfortunately, these hackers are making money off this, too, now that we have digital currencies. So um, their incentives are even greater to do more attacks. And the other thing I think that's really 
changed in the last couple of years is the IOT, I mean, the IT, OT convergence, where they're not only uh, attacking IT systems, they're going after OT systems also, which is really the, the, the crux of our critical infrastructure. So I, I think we're, we're living in perilous times, as Matt said. I do too. Do you, and, and are those systems, um, are those systems easier to target? Because some, sometimes with critical infrastructure, you'll have legacy systems or, you know, the patching or what, whatever it is that you need to do isn't as secure. Uh, yes and no. Um, and the problem, I think, is you don't know if you've been uh, breached sometimes in the OT systems. And therefore, you have no alternative, just like in the Colonial Pipeline, to shut it down. And you don't know if the convergence went through the IT system. So there's problems there. A lot of them are regulated um, and have to keep certain security guidelines, particularly in energy under NERC and others. But uh, they're still vulnerable. They are, as you said, legacy systems. And there's also a lack of cyber expertise in a lot of these systems. Uh, people retire, turnover, and uh, these legacy systems, uh, you know, are not are not the best designed for security. So there are issues. Yeah. And and if you think about it, it's there's kind of like a wave, like a sine wave. If technology is really old and it's analog where you're, you're pulling a lever, it's pretty secure from a cybersecurity <laughs> perspective. Right? But then you get this, this adoption of digital technology because it's more cost effective and you don't have to have an engineer at every site pulling levers. You can do it centrally over the internet. That sounds great. That's cost effective and it's timely. Oh, this is awesome. But that rapid adoption of that new digital technology brings with it those cyber risks. So now not only can you remotely pull those levers, well, a bad guy, if they hack that system, can. And the rush of technology into those environments, right, typically means they weren't properly vetted or tested or aren't maintained from a cybersecurity standard. So even if they were good going out the door on day one, day 15 a vulnerability was discovered, as we see every day, right? And if you're not constantly monitoring those, as Chuck said, and then, you know, patching them, you're opening up that infrastructure, that critical infrastructure to attackers from anywhere around the world. So yeah, in some places it can be more secure, but not as cost-effective. And as soon as you start embracing digital technology, you will always, it will always be accompanied with digital risk as well. Yeah, I mean, that's just how it goes. The more devices you have, the more risk you're going to have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Curious, any, any of you, and even Tyler, I'm curious even your thoughts. Is, is there any silver lining looking forward? And it's hard to look forward with all these compounded things that we're thinking about. Is, is there anything that listeners can kind of get a takeaway? What are something that they can do to stay a little bit safer? Their small business, if, if somebody you know in the government or part of critical infrastructure, what are some basic things that they sh- could be doing or should be doing? Any standouts in your mind? Well, I think it starts with risk management for, for anyone, including individuals or small businesses, especially them, because they're the, the subject of a lot of the attacks. Um, and they could do the basic things that, that you would do. You'd, you'd first of all have a a strategy of, of what you need to protect, where your assets are. You need to segment them. Uh, do you have uh, multi-factor authentication in place? Are your employees trained? Uh, are your routers and Wi-Fi secure? All those things are, are the basics. And it doesn't mean you're not going to get breached. There's still a lot of uh, creative ways, particularly through through phishing and sophisticated attacks right now that are happening. Um, but at least you make yourself less of a target. And I you know, urge small and medium businesses just to Enact the cybersecurity basics. Do that risk measure. And also, you have to have an incident response uh, capability, too, because if you do get hacked, and there's a good chance you will, uh, you need to know how to handle it, who to bring in, where to go, and, uh, you know, particularly if, if your livelihood is depending upon. Yeah. Uh, a, At a high level, there are two types of victims, right? There are ones who are easy, right? And there are ones that have value. So, you know, the the best advice I can give is make sure you're not that easy target among your peers, right? Make sure your security is head and shoulders above everybody else in your sector and and so forth. You don't want to be seen as that easy target. And the other thing is if you have value, you have to protect it. So everything that Chuck is talking about, risk management, know what's valuable to you, your suppliers, your customers, your vendors, upstream and downstream, right? Apply those industry best practices for that that you need to protect 
right? And it could be your reputation. It could be your product. It could be your infrastructure, right? And then have that long-term. This is not something you do once. You need to have that sustaining cybersecurity strategy that encompasses your prediction and your prevention and your detection and your response. And it all feeds back to get more efficient and continually adapt to those intelligent attackers that are also adapting all the time. So don't be afraid, don't be in denial, and, and you know, just follow some of the common sense that's out there. And all these kinds of tools and advice and so forth, they're out there and there's experts to help. Yes. Don't hide. Yes. And, and especially if you're a small business and you have people working from home, you want to make sure that their home environment is as secure and locked down as possible. You know, you don't want all their IoT devices on the same network as you want to segment it off from their your work laptop, your work computer. You don't want to have your personal assistant devices that could be recording information in the same room. Or you don't want to let your kids use your, your work devices either. <laughs> <laughs> Which these are those are easy action. targets right there. That's, yeah. You don't want to be that easy target. <laughs> well, I think I think it's a good point. Is really a, a kind of map brought up is getting help. You're not in this alone. It, it's okay to ask for help to get a third party to come in. It could be a consultant. It could be a, another company because everybody is not a cybersecurity expert, and, and their IT department may not be able to handle it. I always think about it. Sometimes we're too close to the problem. I, I remember a couple of years ago. Uh, it had a, a penetration test and vulnerability assessment done on, on our company. And afterwards kind of did a little debriefing and, and there were several key things identified. And I sat there and scratched my head and said, how in the world could we have missed this? And they said, well, don't worry. This happens all the time. You're too close to it. You assume things. And that's what a lot of companies, we, we, all, we all are guilty of this. If we own a business, a small, big enterprise level, doesn't matter. We're too close to the problem. So getting that third party independent person to come in and see clearly identify those vulnerabilities, and then hopefully you could shore them up so you're not that, that company that becomes the next victim there, I think is really important. Yeah, I agree 100%, Scott. I mean, uh, managed service providers are of great value, particularly to smaller and medium companies who don't have that expertise. But even if they do, they often lose that expertise in-house. And so it, it's, it's a cost that they should look at in the long run as being a savings. So I think looking at all the expertise outside, particularly to do penetration testing and set up basic uh, security, it's it's really, I think, almost essential nowadays. Well, and there's a labor shortage, Mm -hmm. which also- (laughs) There is that, yes. (laughs) And there's that. Shortages of everything, as we've been talking about. (laughs) Well, I I mean, you know, I I look at things and I see- um, Unemployment claims for for October were 291, but we have these cybersecurity jobs, and they're not all coding jobs. These are these are jobs, marketing. These are jobs, uh, sales jobs. There are all kinds of jobs that you know we can train people to move into these cyber positions if if that's something that they're interested in doing. Because if you can sell a car, you can sell an entire secure cybersecurity portfolio. And for people who are in factions of cybersecurity, but they want to move somewhere else, we have to have programs that can quickly upskill these people to get them into these roles. I believe that can help that problem, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of other problems that I don't have the solution for. <laughs> you make a great point, Tyler. I was just talking to somebody probably about two months ago, and they were getting a little bit senior in their career. They were in construction, so it was a little bit harder, the, the physical labor and stuff. But they've always had a fascination with computers, IT from the past. And I suggested, you know, hey, think about cybersecurity. And they said, okay, maybe well, what do you recommend? So we talked about certifications, this and that. And I said, you know, you may even want to try to transition into the industry so you can actually get a job, get on-job training, and they may even pay for certifications and work with you. And sure enough, he went to a company, applied, and they said, yeah, we'll pay for your certifications. And boom, he jumped right in. So you get your toes in the water immediately to see if you like it and you can grow and learn faster. So I always encourage people, don't be hesitant. Um, right. Make it part of your life, your hobby, your career, but, but you got to try it. Take, take that initiative and maybe a company will help along the way with some of that education, get you certified to get you up to speed much quicker. And there you have a lot of growth potential then, depending upon what niche you, you end up choosing in cybersecurity. I think that's, that's great advice. Also, 
Yeah, great advice. Uh, it's good to see the government's also uh, looking at more creative ways like cross-training. I know they're doing a, a lot of uh, uh, training of veterans now. So those programs are good. A few years ago, I wrote an article that we should uh, encourage Native Americans to, to uh, be cybersecurity experts because a lot of them don't want to leave their, their land. They want to be with their community. And now there's a perfect opportunity, I think, for a lot of those type of people that are at home to be able to use those skills and, and help. So I think there's a lot of we could creative. We could find ways to sort of fill the gaps that are that are so blatantly uh, empty right now. Yeah. Right. And I because love ex-military because they've got that yes, right adversarial mindset as well. Yes. So I, we, we've got lots of resources. We just have to be smart about it. Um, and also, you know, I'd, I'd throw a call out to say we need to drive STEM in schools and yes. get people involved earlier at a younger age. Yes. And cybersecurity needs to be part of every engineering curriculum, every software curriculum, all, you know, all these different things, because there is and will be an element of connectiveness and digital um, you know, security for all these jobs moving forward. So we also have to start those next generations that are coming up uh, to have the right skill sets yeah. and mindset for this. You know, I would even take it a step further because we're at a point now where cybersecurity has to be part of everyone's role. They have to have an understanding. So I believe it should be taught as, as, as math is taught and reading and science. Cybersecurity just needs to be part of that because that's the world we live in and that's the world of, of the future as well. You may, that makes great sense. Considering this, this generation now is, is a, you know, locked to their digital devices and, and operate in that environment anyway. I mean, it'd be, it'd be a natural transition for them. And uh, it might even do some good because they tend to overshare on social media and do things they shouldn't do that cause risk. So yeah. uh, I would definitely think, uh, endorse that idea. I think that's, and, and the earlier the better, elementary school, even nursing school. Even. Yeah, yeah. That's when they start using technology, right? I, I mean, yes. I think about my kids, they're now in high school, but at a very early age from elementary into middle school, they were given computers, they wanted smartphones, and, and, and they're ingrained in technology. So naturally, you got to teach them cybersecurity. So as a parent, I'm certainly doing that. But the school system, I found they didn't do a whole lot there. They were quick to give them technology and ask them to adopt, and the kids would adopt and learn it quick. But they didn't really have that great of uh, the cybersecurity principles there. I, I always laugh. I go back. And my kids when in middle school, the password throughout the whole school for them to all log on to everything was pizza. And I kept saying, how could this be? Were they allowing this? I can access grades or this or that. This is not secure. Finally, they've upgraded things. It's much more secure now. But Pizza one, two, three. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Damn, that's Scary, my password. Scary, though. Scary. Just, just last week, my, my kids came back and, and they couldn't go on the Google Classroom for, for three days. Because one of the kids got the password from a principal or something like that, hacked in and started posting all kinds of messages and just, just to be mischievous, I guess, and took everybody basically out of work for three days. They don't get much work done now between the hybrid with the virtual and in class. So things are really messy there. So teaching that, that cybersecurity early age will really do good. Yeah. Well, they understand technology, they, they understand the technology, <laughs> but they don't understand the cybersecurity implications or like Chuck, what Chuck was saying earlier, they don't, they, they overshare everything mm -hmm. and they also don't understand the privacy implications of that. And that's what needs to be taught. And, and I think there's an opportunity here for cybersecurity professionals because uh, I actually volunteer in my community. So I go out to the grade schools and the high school and, you know, I teach cybersecurity and privacy and all those. And it's not only to the kids. We also do forums where we invite the parents in as well. Mm -hmm. And the first thing we talk about is, okay, you know, you gave your kid or, you know, you've got these people your finances, your personal data, this can affect you. If your kid's PC that you bought them for gaming gets hacked, it's on your network and your other PC that you used to log into your bank may get hacked as well and you may lose your assets, right? So it's relevant to you. It needs to start with the parents, but it needs to propagate out. And security professionals, we should be volunteering in our communities because there is a huge issue. And the more we get ahead of this now, 
the better off there's going to be less issues later that I have to deal with, right, (laughs) as they join the the workforce and become a productive member of society. So it just, it helps all the way around. Yeah. Yeah. And what Tyler said about privacy, so true that they don't realize what they're posting might be seen by the college admissions officer or later for their their first job. So they're they're creating a record that could be a very... uh, uh, poor <laughs> when they go to, yes. to, to look where they're going to hopefully uh, get in for college or for their first job in employment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they are very trusting. I've noticed a, a lot of teenagers yeah. even that will share passwords between applications and so many things. And I'm sitting there just saying, what are they thinking? And then you ask them and they say, ah, what's the big deal? What can they do with that? Well, the fact that they reuse that same password across all their apps and all their logins, that's when it starts to become a real big problem. They don't, they don't, they don't get it yet. So uh, some of them are really good with technology, but that cyber side, they're still a little fuzzy because they didn't learn it early on in school. And uh, I, I think all of us, uh, to your point, Matt, can really help. We can share those things, instill those things in the local schools, the community, with everybody we come in contact with and start making a difference because looking at this bigger topic uh, of logistics and supply chain, it, it doesn't affect the cyber industry. It affects every industry. So young ones coming out of school, they're going to be dealing with the problems that this generation is now dealing with because it's not going away. What is causing the supply chain issue? If, 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 um, is it gasoline prices? Because I know that it, it all works together. Like one thing, it's like the domino effect. One little piece falls and the rest start kind of falling into place. Is, is it the high price of gasoline? Is it labor shortage? What is it? I say yes. In other words, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all of those things. Look, look at something as simple as just our economy versus, say, China. If you look at last year versus this year, just containers, 40-foot containers coming from China to the U.S., if they can get into the port, that is. They're $20,000 more per container. There's a 500% increase. We have to buy some of our components, electronic components, especially that come from China, China. Taiwan, Singapore, different areas. The cost to get these things in and the added tariffs that are now applied to a lot of the things are driving the prices of our finished products up significantly. We, We sell mainly to the US DOD community and, and, and the companies that are, you know, um, dealing with security problems and things with the wireless nature. But what does that do? That translates to a large increase in prices just because of that little component alone. So if you take that and now multiply it by all these different verticals tied in and all of the logistics challenges to get it from point A to point B, that's what I think is, is part of the bigger problem. There, it's not any one of these things because we've had problems like this for decades in any one specific area, gas prices up, gas prices down, shipping problems, prices go up, problems down. Add all that together. And now I think my fear and probably as well for the three of you, add that cyber component in, in the not too distant future when it's targeted attacks to any of these verticals, that's when it becomes a complete mess, the perfect storm for problems. Yeah, it's really a national security issue, too, because we should be producing our own chips. We shouldn't be relying yep. on foreign countries for all these vital technological uh, components. And we are. And mm-hmm. maybe this is a wake-up call for that uh, because prices are going to go up uh, or we may not be able to get them if we're in a, in a conflict with one of our adversaries. So we have to really review this whole situation in terms of supply chain. Are, yeah, are there one of the textbooks, to be perfectly honest, yeah. right? And a lot of this... Uh, the logistics issues started with COVID. Um, and, you know, you've got a shortage of workers. You can't bring ships into ports. You look at San Diego and there's, you know, 40-something ships sitting out there. It's never happened before, right? We can't get enough workers on the docks to unload the ships, much less process the ships in, you know. And so, okay, great. And even if you do that, now, wait a second, we don't have enough truck drivers to actually put it on the roads, right? And so you, you start getting the snowball effect. Now, normally when things are running, well, relatively well, there are economic factors, right, that, that compensate, right? If you want your package a little faster, well, you just have to pay a little bit more. But now if you don't have the structures to do that, it's how fragile our supply chain for products 
really is. And again, you start adding now, I mean, that's the, per again, it's the perfect storm for cyber attackers because they go, great, it's already a fragile system. Now I'm going to go hit them with ransomware and they're going to pay me. They don't have the latitude to be offline for a day or two. They're already struggling. They're going to pay me, right? Easy money. And that's what we're seeing. So it's, it is going to get worse because that feeds the financial motivation of cyber criminals. I'm glad you brought that up about the ships. I'm going to read this. Um, so as of Thursday, there were 97 ships waiting to dock at the ports in Los Angeles and Long Beach, 68 of which were waiting at least 150 miles off the coast. Um, new policies have instituted to have ships anchor hundreds of miles offshore. And at the same time, um, the executive director of the Maryland Port Administration says that, well, we don't have problems, so send those ships here. So now those ships have to find a way to get from California to, I mean, they obviously can find a way, but it's not a very short distance. <laughs> and expensive, too. And, yeah. and it's very expensive. What happens, Tyler, when you have ships out there, nearly 100 ships sitting there waiting and waiting, somebody that's got to order goods has a choice. They say, I'm going to have to wait months or even longer, or I'm going to start sending things air. So it actually is a disruptor to the way that transportation happens. And in our company, that's happened too. I've had to get some stuff from overseas and had to wait for three plus months to get it, which should have taken one month because it went by cargo. Now I said, instead of spending any money toward anything in the, in the shipping industry, everything's going air. The cost difference may be $2,000 to $8,000 for a particular shipment. That's a big increase in the cost. And who bears that? The end customer. So if that's just happening from a, a small side that I see this as a small business owner, imagine very large companies and the effect that that will have, of course, on their bottom line, but expectations and everything else. And for some of that, for some things, you can just switch to air, right? Uh, yeah. Microprocessors, yes, you can ship them via air because they're not big. But what about for cars? What about for mm -hmm. refrigerators? You're not going to put that on because it's going to double the price, right? Yeah. So now you've got this impact to the economy and we're seeing it, inflation, right? Things are costing yeah. more yeah. because the supply chain is costing because the, of the delays, uh, because of the waste in the system. Those ships offshore are still burning oil, right? They still have to pay their crew, they're not getting paid for their shipments. So there's still overhead that's accruing mm. for that. And now you've got, especially for large consumer goods that you can't put on a plane. It just financially doesn't make sense. And what about a car? You're not going to put a car on a plane to fly it over. It just, it doesn't work. So there are limited options, which again, constrict and twist the, you know, the, the options of what we have. Oh, that's yeah. a great point. That's a really good point. Don't buy a think, car right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Tyler. <laughs> buy a bike instead. <laughs> I know. It's like, I think I'm just, <clears throat> I want to just get the car that I've been leasing because it's easier. <laughs> it's in your hands. And I know yes. it has components. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and then, then you think about too, um, the rare, rare earth minerals. And a lot of, we don't have some of these minerals in this country that we're kind of dependent on. And that's a problem. And we it's had a lot of them in Afghanistan, unfortunately. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and <laughs> Africa. Titanium out of Russia. Sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Oh. Yeah. I think, I think that's going to be more challenging. You think of something just as lithium for lithium battery, as we see a slow migration toward, uh, electric vehicles. I mean, I've, I've, I've started with stuff in that industry back in 2010. We've been selling testers to help with the big rapid uh, electric vehicle build out. And, and our, our tool is really focused on um, for the chargers, where to locate them from an RF perspective so they can communicate properly. We've seen probably a hundredfold increase just in purchases of our tool because of the EV build out. And what does it represent? 1% of the cars out there, if that? So wait to see what's going to happen soon. But yet an electric vehicle has got so much more electronics in it. 
engine control, so on and so forth. You look yep. at the contrast, old cars versus new cars. What's going to happen with all these shortages and logistics? It's, again, going to pause that industry from jumping out there. Um, it's going to have long-term effects, I think, that are going to take years to for certain industries, I think, to catch up or get back to where they were if they ever can. Do you think that there's something that could be done now that a few little tweaks that would help the situation? There, there certainly is in the sense that think of who is probably hedging their bets, the very large corporations. Imagine if you're I'm just going to pick on Apple for a moment, and you're building X number of millions, if not billions of phones, you've got a big supply chain issue. So when you're going to buy X number of integrated circuits, you're probably going to double that amount and say, let me warehouse these until I could design my own and stop being dependent upon this third party source in Singapore, Indonesia, wherever else. I'll just make them myself. That's what's starting to happen. Now that's going to cause disruptions a year to two years down the line in the world of integrated circuits, I think. So shortages now will have long-term changes to the whole supply chain down the road. And I'm seeing that clearly. I'm getting quotes on a lot of things. The other day, it was 77 weeks for one critical component in one of our units. 77 weeks. How I can't long tell is my that? Customer. What's that? That's a long time. That's well over a year. We're talking about, I have to put orders in now to get delivery in Q1 of 2023. I have government customers handing me orders now for for budgetary reasons that they need to get their stuff delivered early next year. How do I how do I meet that demand? I can't. You have to pay that up front too when you when you make those. Yeah, purchases. a lot of it I have to pay it up front and then I pay it at the back end with added tariffs and other mysterious premiums and things. So it starts to affect the pricing structure of many companies. And I think that's a huge concern going forward because I think all of these things uh, play back to what inflation. It's going to affect inflation one way or another, whether we like it, I think. Um, and that, that's the price to pay as these. It already has. Yeah. yeah. It, it already has. I mean, I don't know um, if, if you notice, but food prices are mm-hmm. ridiculous. It's, it's, it's insane. All right, let's jump in inflation. Uh, for November, uh, highest in 20 years, I believe. But I do see a silver lining though, right? And and, um, you don't see many of those, but because of all of this, I think we're going to see more innovation. We're already seeing it. So you had mentioned lithium for batteries. You know, Tesla and other companies are already looking and researching and implementing other materials instead of lithium, because again, there could be a shortage. Uh, Countries could throttle the availability and demand is going up. So they're looking to jump ahead. We look at the rare earth metals, especially in um, semiconductor industry. Yes, right. We're seeing Intel and, and so forth. They're moving away from some rare earth metals um, and conflict materials, right? More sustainable ones. And so they're, they're driving that innovation to get away from that for that long term kind of planning and being in a good position. Same thing with Apple, right? Apple's doing that as well. So, again, these unusual situation drives something that America is really good at, and that's innovation. If nothing else, we are incredibly competitive when the chips are down. We are very creative and we go sideways and come up with very unusual but practical solutions eventually. I think this is going to show and highlight the innovation of America because this is where we thrive. Yeah. I I, I agree. I agree. It's also encouraging that some other companies now, like Samson, are coming over to like Texas to build and operate. They're going to where the market is, so at least there's an opportunity there too, along with yes. our innovation. What do you, What do you guys think of like like artificial intelligence? Also, I think I start thinking about some of these problems, yeah. and, and and then I step back from it and I say we have so much more modern technology, algorithms, artificial intelligence, machine learning. If properly adapted, and a lot of times people say AI, and it's not true AI, but if it's done properly, a lot of these problems could be more efficient and solved. And just a case in point, I, uh, we were getting Chipotle last night, and we always buy from an app, and I think everybody else does, as well as DoorDash and so on and so forth. And I, I walk into Chipotle, and there was 100 people in line because the app was down. And I'm sitting there going, 
this is crazy. And they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle it. And the people just kept coming and coming. And you could see the sweat pouring down their face and they're trying to move things out the door. And I said, here's a perfect example. They're not prepared to handle this influx just because a simple app is down. It's amazing. But those type of things I think we're starting to see where our dependence on technology, it's, it's good when it works, but man, when it doesn't work, it causes such problems that have this reciprocal effect across the board. We're so, so dependent on technology. Yeah. And that is some that is a trend that will continue. We will continue to be dependent on technology and become more and more and more and more reliant. And you know, that's just sort of the trend. That's how things are, because these things do, there are benefits to them and they do make our lives easier. And, you know, to Matt's point. I, I really do think that, you know, this country and, and, and the world, you know, it's innovation. And, you know, look at with COVID, there was more innovation in the health care sector during that time period than I, I think there's ever been. So I, I do think there is hope. And some of that's being done with these new technologies. Artificial intelligence was used for drug discovery uh, to find different kinds of uh, remedies. Uh, it's been now being used more and more uh, for manufacturing to, to lower costs. So, you know, technology is a tool and it definitely has some, some positive effects. And I think artificial intelligence, machine learning, whatever you want to call it right now, um, is certainly going to be a, 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 help, a level of playing field, at least to make it while we're under this uh, inflationary uh, uh, pressure. So it is, it, is, it is positive and it also will enhance innovation. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of AI, <clears throat> especially machine learning, deep learning. Um, but yeah, as Chuck, as you said, it's a tool and it can be used for wonderful, incredible things, right? To serve mankind, it can also be used by the bad guys, right? As an equally powerful tool to target and victimize and take advantage of situations. So we just need to understand with all great innovation and technology, as we rush to embrace it, no matter how powerful it is, there is an equitable amount of risk and potential danger as we integrate and rely upon digital information and data and systems. So we just need to go at it and approach it, understanding that, not being only looking at the shine of things, but looking at both sides so that we can manage those risks in a proactive way. So we can embrace the benefits without being victimized um, by the technology that we love. Wow, that was very well said. (laughs) I love technology. <laughs> I just want it to be trustworthy. I, yeah, That's all I, I want. I do too. I, I, have this weird, I have this weird love-hate relationship with mm-hmm. it. Like, you know, I, I, I love it, but I hate it at the same time. So it's just this conflicting thing that's always in my mind because I know the, the potential risks that are associated with, with everything. And you're right. You know, any new invention could be used for good or it could be used for for bad. And I mean, you know, that's that's just kind of the way that that it is. I mean, like, look at AI. Hackers and hacking groups are now using AI to parse through social media to help better Mm -hmm. target and for many other things. So. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it's like a Star Trek and, you know, we, we have to be the good guys here and uh, go by the prime directive and, you know, the other guys don't have to do that. They, and they're in the hacking groups, they talk to each other, mm-hmm. they actually yeah. communicate. That is something that we in the, in this, in business, we do not do well. We do a terrible job at collaborating um, and really having lessons learned to really help each other. And there's reasons for that. And I understand that, but I think we need to have a lot more of that. Yeah, particularly in research and development. And I think, uh, you know, DHS is trying to push that. But, uh, um, and so is DARPA and other places, DOD. Uh, but uh, we really need to, to come together and to develop this ingenuity and innovation that Matt was speaking about. Because we're, at, as we said earlier, at a crisis point for supply chain, but not just supply chain with, with other threats too. Mm-hmm. It's something that we really need to get better at. And it's something that we are in control of. Nobody's stopping us uh, for communicating and collaborating. We are tripping over our own feet. 
And yes. yet the bad guys are doing it and they're becoming more powerful and more agile because of it. If we want to at least keep parity with the attackers out there, we have to do that better. We have to communicate. We have to collaborate. It's crazy. I know, I know this is kind of a little off topic, but um, I started my career kind of in digital forensics and um, I went from a, a, um, a private company to DOD Cybercrime Center. And it was a really big retail case I had been working at um, with, the, uh, with IBM. And you, when you're doing these cases, you just memorize the IP addresses. You memorize everything about it. And um, I happened to, to switch jobs you know, right after, right after that case. And I started a new case. And just because those numbers were still in my head, I just put them in. And you're not going to believe what, what, what I found. <laughs> exact same attacker, exact same oh, methodology. Goodness. And I kind of collaborated with myself in a way. But that's sort of what we need because the time it would have taken for someone else to find that without having no, known that stuff prior, it would have taken forever. You're right. That's a resource that should be shared. And, and uh, you know, when we're talking, we're talking about supply chain. I mean, that also is an avenue, you know, for hackers. I mean, it started, you know, years ago. I mean, Target was uh, fairly recent, too, with where third-party vendors are, are being used because they're, they're weak links. And uh, you don't know who's in your supply chain. So naturally, they go to where the low-hanging fruit is. And supply chain for hackers has been part of that uh, ecosystem of low-hanging hanging fruit. And that's something we have to really address, right, is, is especially in that software supply chain, because all the suppliers and companies out there in the world, they're using software. And so when we saw SolarWinds, that was a wake-up moment. And the security professionals for decades were saying, hey, this is going to be a problem. And people were kicking the can, you know, down the road. And all of a sudden, when SolarWinds hit, well, wait a second, this is a problem. And luckily, there wasn't severe damage that the attacker wanted to do. But if they wanted to, they could have crippled um, our critical infrastructure. They absolutely could have. They, they were able to gain those rights and access. And it, probably fortunate for us, they were just looking to gather information instead of actually doing harm and burning environments down. But if it were a different attacker, right, something really, really bad would have happened. We have to worry about that for all. I mean, we've got the, you know, a recent vulnerability this week, right? All the security pros have been up this poor weekend worried about Log4j. Uh, and it's big. It's a 10 out of 10 kind of vulnerability. But that is a piece of code that people use, right? Grab it and throw it in their software, put it in their production system. And it's a supply chain issue. It's not code that they wrote. It's somebody that, you know, something they're grabbing and using. It's, a, it's an open library. And we have to worry about that. And we're going to see more and more vulnerability in that space. And in this case, anybody. Kids were hacking Minecraft servers, right? Somebody, <laughs> people that, that were not technical at all. We're undermining major environments. And it's, it's easy, unfortunately. So we're going to see things like this again and again and again that can undermine the security, the trust, the integrity, and the confidentiality of, of these software systems that run, well, everything. We don't have a solution for that yet either. <clears throat> I mean, this there is are a There some breaker. patches that you can do. Yeah, I think the big fix is going to be when a major revision comes out, which will probably right, get pushed sure. forward. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, this is the, the vulnerability du jour. We're going to yeah. have more tomorrow and the next day and the next day. The system has been designed and coding and product development has evolved to a state where there aren't deep checks like that. And when a vulnerability does get discovered, everybody first asks, do we use that? Well, I don't know. How do we find out? Right? Yeah. There's, there's not even a database to say what you're using and what versions you're using for many organizations. So it becomes, let's start from scratch and start looking under rocks. Well, yeah. that isn't very efficient, right? So there's so many things that need to get better here. Yeah. One of those could also be that using a software bill of materials, which is now being pushed by DHS. So you at least know what's in your code and who, you know, first thing is knowing what's there Yes. and, uh, you know, and identifying it. So uh, I'm hoping that takes, has legs. It looks like it, it is, it's being adopted by DOD and other parts of the uh, federal government, but uh, that's just one step. We need to do yeah. more. 
I think it's a good step. It brings a lot of overhead, so there'll be refinements to it. Uh, we saw that in the software and hardware industry, you know, firmware and operating systems and so on and so forth many years ago. And it was, everybody went forward and said, oh, this is a great thing to do until they started doing it and realized it bogged things down so much that they had to pull back and find kind of an optimal balance on, on what to track. And I think we'll get there in this space as well, but it isn't an instant fix. It's something right. that we have to learn and adapt to and then craft for wherever we're at in our evolution in this digital transformation. You know, what, one of the things that I keep thinking about is um, to help with, you know, the ships and the order or the priority that they can get on dock. I know it, some of it has to do with having trucks there, but, um, you know, having a, a very good inventory system. Um, so, you know, what are perishable goods or what are medications, what are things so that they can get in first? Because, you know, it's again, this is not like when COVID first started and you couldn't find toilet paper. You know, this is medications. <laughs> this is, yeah. Yeah. you know, much, much more important stuff. Um, you know, it will be interesting too. you know, um, have, have any of you guys had issues finding um, Christmas presents for your kids? I can't get a replacement video card. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I think just, Amazon's just in pretty general, good. there's stuff. Yeah, Amazon's good, except they just had, I think, two two plants uh, collapse with that recent uh, oh, yeah, stuff that happened yeah. in Kentucky. Terrible. So yeah. that's a shame. Yeah. What a tragedy that whole mess is. But A tornado they, in December? Yeah. Yeah, well, it was uh, how many people have passed away from that? It was I heard 60, 70, oh, 100 that, that have died. That's that's pretty critical. And it's heading, I guess, uh, headed out to, to the East Coast there. Um, but but you take something that's like a natural disaster like that. You couple it with kind of pandemic, post pandemic mess that we're coming out of as the economy's kind of getting better, inflation, all these supply chains and logistics. And then you just throw cybersecurity anywhere in that mix. To me, it's the perfect storm again and again, where we really have to say something has to be done across the board because it, it, it can get a lot worse. That's the part that I, I kind of envision looking ahead. We think it's really bad with a lot of things. Our package doesn't arrive. Prices go up. It's hard to get certain things that you can't buy, but, but it can get a lot worse. And I think that's what we have to realize if we don't all start working together and acting now and use technology where we can to make it better. And sometimes we've got to back away from technology because sometimes technology is part of the problem and it's part of the solution. So understanding it and putting it in its proper perspective, I think does help in a lot of these conversations. I think you're right. And there's a dirty little secret that we don't really want to talk about. Talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunately, it's a good time to be a cyber criminal right now. Because of everything that Scott was saying, lots of victims, lots of target, lots of money out there, lots of value, lots of motivation. There's fragile systems and, and we're going to see it. And it's not just with the hackers that are there now, right? We're going to connect another billion people to the internet. And a lot of those people are going to be coming from countries and regions that are economically strained. Mm -hmm. Over half of the population on the planet live on more or live on less than $20 a day. And when you start connecting them, they see being connected as a lifeline. It's the ability to be able to put food on the table. And if cybercrime is something that will do that, transform, transform their life, be able to, again, food on the table, kids can afford school, things of that sort. And it's, you know, so easy and there's so little chance of being caught, we're creating an environment by our lack of securing it. We're creating an environment that's conducive to attracting a good chunk of those next billion people to become cyber criminals, mm -hmm. right? That so our lack of action point. will bring those yes. to the table. And I don't want to fight the next billion people. I, I don't. don't. Either. I don't, yeah. don't need them to join this fight. <laughs> no, no, you don't. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> and, 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 and you know, it, it, it's so there's even there's even jobs within this industry that are are maybe borderline. Like there are businesses that now they will help negotiate your ransomware down. Mm -hmm. Is that yeah. criminal? I don't know, but they make money. Yeah. 
I think it yeah, should well, be criminal pain ransomware, yeah. right? Yeah. We should yeah. not be paying extortion. It just propagates the problem. Yeah, it makes it worse. I, I think, too, if we think yeah. about it, sometimes there are things there that are enabling it, but nobody does anything about it. And, I, and I'm thinking about just the dark web, cryptocurrency, both things that have very positive influences in certain ways, but there's a lot of negativity associated because cyber criminals lurk there and can be so successful. You can't catch a cyber criminal easily when they're anonymous. They can make a lot of money. They can do it from the convenience of their home. And yet the dark web is still out there. It's being patrolled. They're, they're catching people here and there. The amount of money and resources to do that is astronomical, though. Yes. And the time that's spent there, instead of doing good things, sometimes you look at it and say, what in the world is going on in this world? And then how they can hide behind a lot of the cryptocurrency. And again, stay anonymous. It's difficult. So sometimes these good technologies, when they come out, when they're used improperly, as we talked about before, those become kind of almost like an enabler for it to get worse and worse and worse. And it's hard to fix it because that's part of the problem. Well, I'm a big fan of cryptocurrency. So, and it's the same thing for AI, mm -hmm. right? If cyber criminals are using AI, do we say AI is bad and let's just mm -hmm. shut it all down? No, it doesn't make sense. Same thing the with cryptocurrency or quantum or, or anything that we want to talk about, right? Uh, I mean, cyber criminals are using cloud. Do we shut down cloud? Mm -hmm. No. Cyber, cyber um, you know, or criminals in general have blossomed since the introduction of the internet. Mm -hmm. Right. Cybercrime is worth more than the entire illicit drug trade around the world. Do we shut down the Internet? No. Right. These are all powerful tools. We need to find ways to use them right and be able to govern them and control them. And for any new technology, there's always that gap. There's always that window opportunity. Bad guys go into it first and they get to run rampant yep. until law enforcement, until regulations, until governments can start to respond. And I, I remember years ago talking with law enforcement. And they said, oh, we hate, we hate Bitcoin. We hate cryptocurrency. It's just criminals that use it. No, it's not just criminals that use it. And I said, eventually you're going to love it. And they're like, no, it's pseudo anonymous. We hate it. You know what? A lot of the law enforcement I work with now love it. Because when you go after an organized crime, um, you know, group, if they're using paper or they're using something else, you will never know their red ledger. You may bust them on a single crime. You've got a bucket of money. You've got a car full of drugs. That's all they're going to get them on. Whereas yeah. if they're using cryptocurrency and you can identify what their account is, you can now track every transaction they've ever made. Right. You know exactly. exactly. Right. And so, and they're like, wow, we were never able to do that. That turns a $10,000 bust into a $20 million bust we like this now. And you don't, from professional, you know, uh, police agencies, you don't hear them saying we hate cryptocurrency anymore. They want the bad guys to use it so that they have that full catalog, yeah. right? So again, as the tools and the tactics evolve in law enforcement regulation, mm, now that, that powerful tool that the bad guys were using, the good guys get to use it too. Yeah. So again, a lot of it's timing. It's also a resource as an investment, and hopefully we're investing in local and state law enforcement yeah. capabilities and in forensics and from the national security point of the intelligence communities because mm -hmm. there really is a global war out there, particularly yes. with the dark web, and stealing our tools from NSA and other things. So, um, you know, it's, it's a wild, wild west is what it is, and we really need to, to hunker down. Yeah. And to that point, Chuck, you know, especially how the law enforcement work together and sharing those yes. best practices and tools and knowledge and, and you know, uh, information about threat actors and everything, and then pushing that up from the local to the federal agencies as well. That has to happen. And I know CISA is working on that. I know FBI has been working in the background for a long time in, in regards to that. Um, we got to get better. But I, I love to see what they're already doing in that space. I just want to move faster. Yes. I, I know we're running low on time, so I just have two more questions. One, so companies, if you're a healthcare provider and um, you get hit with ransomware and you didn't have proper protective measures or, or an instant response policy, um, do are we going to start seeing companies having sort of a stash of cryptocurrency waiting just in case they have to pay a ransom? Well, they have been paying. Uh, we don't know how many of them are paying. 
but they have been paying rather than go through the the headaches, uh, you know, with, with uh, of trying to get their systems operating again, and, and also because of liability issues with some of the medical equipment patients. So they have been paying, and it's quite plausible that they do that um, if they don't get the right resources and help uh, now uh, that they desperately need. And I know there's some some independent groups out there that are actually volunteering and helping them uh, create better cyber defenses. They, they you know some hospitals have like, one or two people. Uh, working and have no real conception of, of the, the threat landscape. Um, this is relatively new for them, uh, but now they've been hit so much in the last couple of years that they have no choice but to do this. But I think some of them uh, are looking at having, uh, you know, one of the alternatives is paying, which I think is a bad idea, but they're doing it. Yeah. Uh, early on, I know some big tech companies that were very tech savvy were stashing some some cryptocurrency uh, in the event of that. But I think most companies now, they're going through a third party. They're either going primarily yeah. through their insurance carrier, mm -hmm. and they've got their own vendors that deal with figuring out cryptocurrency and everything, or they're going through a private negotiator when something bad happens. But I'm with Chuck. I am absolutely in the camp of we should not be paying these criminals for their, their extortion, their di digital extortion, because they're just going to keep coming back. Yep. And we're looking at billions of dollars flowing there that now they're investing in these new vulnerabilities in zero days. We're just giving them more power to attack us. Okay. So anytime somebody's impacted by ransomware, that needs to be a wake-up call. You've got deficient security controls. You need to be paying more attention. You need to be more proactive and have a better sustainable system versus paying the person that's going to keep coming back. And by the way, when you pay it, you get to be on the special list Mm -hmm. And they're going to come back after you. And they're going to yep. share that list with yep. other criminals because they know you're a victim that's going to pay. So they're just going to keep coming after you. They collaborate. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I'll sell you my list. Yeah. Right? I'm a bad guy. You're a bad guy. I'll sell you my list of victims that pay. Here you go. That's the way it works. And yeah. anything yeah. it works. So, I, so we're running low on time. We have um, a couple of minutes left. Um, does anyone have any final final thoughts? Because if if not, I'd like to ask a question. Let's ask a question. Go for it. You're the host. You can do it. Because we have just a few minutes. Um, the next show is on cybersecurity predictions. And you guys are, are experts. We're all experts here. I want to know, what are your, your top cyber prediction for um, in the cybersecurity space for 2022? What do you think is going to be the most important thing? Chuck? Well, there's, there, <laughs> I, I don't know if there's one most important, but I, I, I think you're going to be seeing, um, as Matt said earlier, a lot more tax on critical infrastructure. And I think there'll be much more of a focus on the ITOT convergence. And it'll be, uh, there'll be more measures. There's, there's legislation right now. Um, calling for uh, more fortifications, but I think it's going to be uh, the point where maybe the government actually takes more responsibility for protecting the private sector, particularly with uh, energy and healthcare and perhaps financial and other areas. But I think you'll see a, a sea change of policy when if something bad does happen. Not a good prediction, but it's likely. And I'm actually working on my 2022 predictions. So I've got 11 of them. I won't go into detail, but I'll give you a, a short list of what they encompass. The relevance of cybersecurity, cryptocurrency is going to be some interesting changes there. Quantum, we're going to see some things happen. AI, ransomware, no, no surprise there. Critical infrastructure, we've been talking all about that this entire show. Uh, cyber criminals, we're going to see a rise. Um, foreign policy, we're going to see cyber attacks really kind of feed into that. We're also going to see oppressive governments um, using cyber and cyber attacks or issues in that space. Law enforcement's going to get some good wins. And I think there is going to be a much stronger public-private cooperation and collaboration. And, and part of that is some of the regulations. Part of that is some of the information sharing. But if nothing else, doors are going to open and phone calls are going to be made and, and communication is going to start to happen more next year. I'll throw in one more that just kind of stood out. It's a little more focused that I'm predicting is ransomware and cyber attacks targeting the electric vehicle market because there's a lot of vulnerabilities out there. There's a hard, hard push with all the investment that some really large companies have put out. Now they're looking to, to start seeing some of that return. 
but security is kind of getting pushed aside. And we don't hear a whole lot about all the vulnerabilities and how they're going to handle it or are handling it. But you could see that that's a big, big focus and a big spend. And now on top of that, you've got the Biden administrating, uh, administration committing toward billions of dollars to building out that infrastructure. So to me, that's the perfect storm in 2022 for some very focused attacks. And These another are- yeah, go ahead. And what, when another vertical I think we have to look at is space. Um, mm-hmm. Just a couple yes. weeks ago, uh, one of the, the generals announced that we're being our satellites under attack every day, and we're more and more dependent for our communications and, and uh, monitoring our infrastructure with with space. Uh, so that's not even a critical infrastructure under DHS yet. It should be. Yeah. That's another yeah. one. Yeah, and I think they're going to be targeting a lot of the ground stations, which directly affect the satellites. It's a lot easier to attack some of the ground stations and the communication, which in turn will have these birds crashing into one another in no time. Well, it's, it's going to be an interesting (laughs) year. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys so much for coming on. This was such a great episode and um, I hope to have you guys on another episode. Thank you so much for listening to my connected life with Tyler Cohen Wood. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week to My Connected Life. We have much more for you next Wednesday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be careful with your data and your life.